Chapter Forty One of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Forty One. All hail to the lordlings of high degree who live not more happy though greater than we. Our pastimes to see under every green tree in all the gay woodland right welcome ye be. MacDonald. The newcomers were Wilfred of Ivanhoe on the prior of Boltolf's palfrey, and Gurth who attended him on the knight's own war-horse. The astonishment of Ivanhoe was beyond bounds when he saw his master be sprinkled with blood, and six or seven dead bodies lying around in the little glade in which the battle had taken place. Nor was he less surprised to see Richard surrounded by so many sylvan attendants, the outlaws as they seemed to be, of the forest, and a perilous retinue therefore for a prince. He hesitated whether to address the king as the black knight-errant, or in what other manner to demean himself towards him. Richard saw his embarrassment. "'Fear not, Wilfred,' he said, "'to address Richard Plantagenet as himself, since thou seest him in the company of true English hearts, although it may be they have been urged a few steps aside by warm English blood.' "'Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe,' said the gallant outlaw, stepping forward, "'my assurances can add nothing to those of our sovereign. Yet let me say somewhat proudly, that of men who have suffered much, he hath not truer subjects than those who now stand around him.' "'I cannot doubt it, brave man,' said Wilfred, "'since thou art of the number. But what mean these marks of death and danger, these slain men and the bloody armour of my prince?' "'Treason hath been with us, Ivanhoe,' said the king." but thanks to these brave men, treason hath met its meed. But now I bethink thee, thou too art a traitor, said Richard, smiling, a most disobedient traitor, for were not our orders positive that thou shouldst repose thyself at St. Boltolf's until thy wound was healed? It is healed, said Ivanhoe. It is not of more consequence than the scratch of a bodkin. But why, oh why, noble prince, Will you thus vex the hearts of your faithful servants, and expose your life by lonely journeys and rash adventures, as if it were of no more value than that of a mere knight-errant, who has no interest on earth but what lance and sword may procure him? And Richard Plantagenet, said the king, desires no more fame than his good lance and sword may acquire him, and Richard Plantagenet is prouder of achieving an adventure with only his good sword and his good arm to speed, than if he led to battle a host of an hundred thousand armed men. "'But your kingdom, my liege,' said Ivanhoe, "'your kingdom is threatened with dissolution and civil war, your subjects menaced with every species of evil, if deprived of their sovereign in some of those dangers which it is your daily pleasure to incur, and from which you have but this moment narrowly escaped.' "'Ho, ho, my kingdom and my subjects,' answered Richard impatiently. "'I tell thee, Sir Wilfred,' the best of them are most willing to repay my follies in kind. For example, my very faithful servant, Wilfred of Ivanhoe, will not obey my positive commands, and yet reads his king a homily, because he does not walk exactly by his advice. Which of us has most reason to upbraid the other? Yet forgive me, my faithful Wilfred, the time I have spent, and am yet to spend in concealment, is, as I explained to thee at St. Botolph's, necessary to give my friends and faithful nobles time to assemble their forces, that when Richard's return is announced, he should be at the head of such a force as enemies shall tremble to face, and thus subdue the meditated treason 
without even unsheathing a sword. Estoteville and Bohun will not be strong enough to move forward to York for twenty-four hours. I must have news of Salisbury from the south, and of Beecham in Warwickshire, and of Moulton and Percy in the north. The Chancellor must make sure of London. Too sudden an appearance would subject me to dangers, other than my lance and sword, though backed by the bow of bold Robin, or the quarter-staff of Friar Tuck, and the horn of the sage Wamba, may be able to rescue me from. Wilfred bowed in submission, well knowing how vain it was to contend with the wild spirit of chivalry which so often impelled his master upon dangers which he might easily have avoided, or rather, which it was unpardonable in him to have sought out. The young knight sighed, therefore, and held his peace while Richard, rejoiced at having silenced his counsellor, though his heart acknowledged the justice of the charge he had brought against him, went on in conversation with Robin Hood. King of outlaws, he said, have you no refreshment to offer to your brother's sovereign? For these dead knaves have found me both in exercise and appetite. In troth, replied the outlaw, for I scorn to lie to your grace, our larder is chiefly supplied with— He stopped and was somewhat embarrassed. "'With venison, I suppose?' said Richard gaily. "'Better food at need there can be none, and truly, if a king will not remain at home and slay his own game, methinks he should not brawl too loud if he finds it killed to his hand.' "'If your grace, then,' said Robin, "'will again honour with your presence one of Robin Hood's places of rendezvous, the venison shall not be lacking, and a stoop of ale, and it may be a cup of reasonably good wine, to relish it withal.' The outlaw accordingly led the way, followed by the buxom monarch, more happy probably in this chance meeting with Robin Hood and his foresters, than he would have been in again assuming his royal state and presiding over a splendid circle of peers and nobles. Novelty in society and adventure were the zest of life to Richard Corday Leon, and it had its highest relish when enhanced by dangers encountered and surmounted. In the lion-hearted king, the brilliant but useless character of a knight of romance was in a great measure realized and revived, and the personal glory which he acquired by his own deeds of arms was far more dear to his excited imagination than that which a course of policy and wisdom would have spread around his government. Accordingly, his reign was like the course of a brilliant and rapid meteor which shoots along the face of heaven, shedding around an unnecessary and portentous light, which is instantly swallowed up by universal darkness, his feats of chivalry furnishing themes for bards and minstrels, but affording none of those solid benefits to his country on which history loves to pause and hold up as an example to posterity. But in his present company Richard showed to the greatest imaginable advantage. He was gay, good-humoured, and fond of manhood in every rank of life. Beneath a huge oak tree the sylvan repast was hastily prepared for the King of England, surrounded by men outlaws to his government, but who now formed his court and his guard. As the flagon went round, the rough foresters soon lost their awe for the presence of majesty. A song and the jest were exchanged, the stories of former deeds were told with advantage, and at length, and while boasting of their successful infraction of the laws, no one recollected they were speaking in presence of their natural guardian. The merry king, nothing heeding his dignity any more than his company, laughed, quaffed, and jested among the jolly band. The natural and rough sense of Robin Hood led him to be desirous that the scene should be closed, ere anything should occur to disturb its harmony, the more especially that he observed Ivanhoe's brow clouded with anxiety. "'We are honoured,' he said to Ivanhoe, apart, 
by the presence of our gallant sovereign, yet I would not that he dallied with time, which the circumstance of his kingdom may render precious. It is well and wisely spoken, brave Robin Hood, said Wilfred apart, and know, moreover, that they who jest with majesty even in its gayest mood are but toying with the lion's whelp, which, on slight provocation, uses both fangs and claws. You have touched the very cause of my fear, said the outlaw. My men are rough by practice and nature. The king is hasty as well as good-humoured. Nor know I how soon cause of offence may arise, or how warmly it may be received. It is time this revel were broken off. It must be by your management, then, gallant yeoman, said Ivanhoe, for each hint I have essayed to give him serves only to induce him to prolong it. Must I so soon risk the pardon in favour of my sovereign? said Robin Hood, pausing for all instant. But by St. Christopher it shall be so. I were undeserving his grace did I not peril it for his good. Here, Scathlock, get thee behind yonder thicket, and wind me a Norman blast on thy bugle, and without an instant's delay, on peril of your life. Scathlock obeyed his captain, and in less than five minutes the revellers were started by the sound of his horn. It is the bugle of Malvoisin, said the miller, starting to his feet and seizing the bow. The friar dropped the flagon and grasped his quarter-staff. Wamba stopped short in the midst of a jest, and betook himself to sword and target. All the others stood to their weapons. Men of their precarious course of life change readily from the banquet to the battle, and, to Richard, the exchange seemed but a succession of pleasure. He called for his helmet and the most cumbrous parts of his armor which he had laid aside, and while Gurth was putting them on, he laid his strict injunctions on Wilfred under pain of his highest displeasure, not to engage in the skirmish which he supposed was approaching. Thou hast fought for me an hundred times, Wilfred, and I have seen it. Thou shalt this day look on, and see how Richard will fight for his friend and liegeman. In the meantime, Robin Hood had sent off several of his followers in different directions, as if to reconnoitre the enemy, and when he saw the company effectually broken up, he approached Richard, who was now completely armed, and, kneeling down on one knee, craved pardon of his sovereign. "'For what, good yeoman?' said Richard, somewhat impatiently. "'Have we not already granted thee a full pardon for all transgressions? Thinkest thou our word is a feather, to be blown backward and forward between us?' Thou canst not have had time to commit any new offence since that time. Ay, but I have, though, answered the yeoman, if it be an offence to deceive my prince for his own advantage. The bugle you have heard was none of Malvoisin's, but blown by my direction, to break off the banquet, lest it trenched upon hours of dearer import than to be thus dallied with. He then rose from his knee, folded his arm on his bosom, and in a manner rather respectful than submissive, awaited the answer of the king, like one who is conscious he may have given offence, yet is confident in the rectitude of his motive. The blood rushed in anger to the countenance of Richard, but it was the first transient emotion, and his sense of justice instantly subdued it. The king of Sherwood, he said, grudges his venison and his wine-flask to the king of England? It is well, bold Robin, but when you come to see me in merry London, I trust to be a less niggard host." Thou art right, however, good fellow. Let us therefore to horse and away. Wilfred has been impatient this hour. Tell me, bold Robin, hast thou never a friend in thy band, who, not content with advising, will needs direct thy motions, and look miserable when thou dost presume to act for thyself? 
Such a one, said Robin, is my lieutenant, Little John, who is even now absent on an expedition as far as the borders of Scotland, and I will own to your majesty that I am sometimes displeased by the freedom of his counsels, but, when I think twice, I cannot be long angry with one who can have no motive for his anxiety save zeal for his master's service. Thou art right, good yeoman, answered Richard, and if I had Ivanhoe on the one hand to give grave advice, and recommended by the sad gravity of his brow, and thee on the other to trick me into what thou thinkest my own good, I should have as little the freedom of mine own will as any king in Christendom or heatheness. But come, sirs, let us merrily on to Coningsburg, and think no more on it. Robin Hood assured them that he had detached a party in the direction of the road they were to pass, who would not fail to discover and apprise them of any secret ambuscade, and that he had little doubt they would find the ways secure, or, if otherwise, would receive such timely notice of the danger as would enable them to fall back on a strong troop of archers, with which he himself proposed to follow on the same route. The wise and attentive precautions adopted for his safety touched Richard's feelings, and removed any slight grudge which he might retain on account of the deception the outlaw captain had practised upon him. He once more extended his hand to Robin Hood, assured him of his full pardon and future favour, as well as his firm resolution to restrain the tyrannical exercise of the forest rights and other oppressive laws by which so many English yeomen were driven into a state of rebellion. But Richard's good intentions towards the bold outlaw were frustrated by the king's untimely death, and the charter of the forest was extorted from the unwilling hands of King John when he succeeded to his heroic brother. As for the rest of Robin Hood's career, as well as the tale of his treacherous death, they are to be found in those black-letter garlands, once sold at the low and easy rate of one half-penny, now cheaply purchased at their weight in gold. The outlaw's opinion proved true, and the king, attended by Ivanhoe, Gurth, and Wamba, arrived, without any interruption, within view of the castle of Coningsburg, while the sun was yet in the horizon. There are few more beautiful or striking scenes in England than are presented by the vicinity of this ancient Saxon fortress. The soft and gentle river Don sweeps through an amphitheatre, in which cultivation is richly blended with woodland, and on a mount, ascending from the river, well defended by walls and ditches, rises this ancient edifice, which, as its Saxon name implies, was, previous to the conquest, a royal residence of the kings of England. The outer walls have probably been added by the Normans, but the inner keep bears token of a very great antiquity. It is situated on a mount at one angle of the inner court, and forms a complete circle of perhaps twenty-five feet in diameter. The wall is of immense thickness, and is propped or defended by six huge external buttresses which project from the circle, and rise up against the sides of the tower as if to strengthen or to support it. These massive buttresses are solid when they arise from the foundation, and a good way higher up, but are hollowed out towards the top, and terminate in a sort of turrets communicating with the interior of the keep itself. The distant appearance of this huge building, with these singular accompaniments, is as interesting to the lovers of the picturesque as the interior of the castle is to the eager antiquary, whose imagination it carries back to the days of the Heptarchy. A barrow in the vicinity of the castle is pointed out as the tomb of the memorable Hengist, and various monuments of great antiquity and curiosity are shown in the neighboring churchyard. When Corday Leon and his retinue approached this rude yet stately building, 
it was not, as at present, surrounded by external fortifications. The Saxon architect had exhausted his art in rendering the main keep defensible, and there was no other circumvallation than a rude barrier of palisades. A huge black banner, which floated from the top of the tower, announced that the obesquies of the late owner were still in the act of being solemnized. It bore no emblem of the deceased's birth or quality, for armorial bearings were then a novelty among the Norman chivalry themselves, and were totally unknown to the Saxons. But above the gate was another banner, on which the figure of a white horse, rudely painted, indicated the nation and rank of the deceased, by the well-known symbol of Hengist and his Saxon warriors. All around the castle was a scene of busy commotion, for such funeral banquets were times of general and profuse hospitality, which not only every one who could claim the most distant connection with the deceased, but all passengers whatsoever, were invited to partake. The wealth and consequence of the deceased Athelstane occasioned this custom to be observed in the fullest extent. Numerous parties, therefore, were seen ascending and descending the hill on which the castle was situated, and when the king and his attendants entered the open and unguarded gates of the external barrier, the space within presented a scene not easily reconciled with the cause of the assemblage. In one place cooks were toiling to roast huge oxen and fat sheep. In another, hogsheads of ale were set a broach to be drained at the freedom of all comers. Groups of every description were to be seen devouring the food and swallowing the liquor thus abandoned to their discretion. The naked Saxon serf was drowning the sense of his half-year's hunger and thirst in one day of gluttony and drunkenness, the more pampered Burgess and Guild brother was eating his morsel with gust, or curiously criticizing the quantity of the malt and the skill of the brewer. Some few of the poorer Norman gentry might also be seen, distinguished by their shaven chins and short cloaks, and not less so by their keeping together, and looking with great scorn on the whole solemnity, even while condescending to avail themselves of the good cheer which was so liberally supplied. Mendicants were of course assembled by the score, together with strolling soldiers returned from Palestine, according to their own account at least, peddlers were displaying their wares, traveling mechanics were inquiring after employment, and wandering palmers, hedge-priests, Saxon minstrels, and Welsh bards were muttering prayers and extracting mistuned dirges from their harps, crowds, and rotes. One sent forth the praises of Athelstane in a doleful panegyric, another in a Saxon genealogical poem, rehearsed the uncouth and harsh names of his noble ancestry. Jesters and jugglers were not a-wanting, nor was the occasion of the assembly supposed to render the exercise of their profession indecorous or improper. Indeed, the ideas of the Saxons on these occasions were as natural as they were rude. If sorrow was thirsty, there was drink. If hungry, there was food. If it sunk down upon and saddened the heart, there were means supplied of mirth, or at least of amusement." nor did the assistants scorn to avail themselves of those means of consolation, although every now and then, as if suddenly recollecting the cause which had brought them together, the men groaned in unison, while the females, of whom many were present, raised up their voices and shrieked for very woe. Such was the scene in the castle-yard of Koningsberg when it was entered by Richard and his followers. The seneschal or steward deigned not to take notice of the groups of inferior guests, who were perpetually entering and withdrawing, unless so far as was necessary to preserve order. Nevertheless, he was struck by the good mien of the monarch and Ivanhoe, more especially as he imagined the features of the latter were familiar to him. Besides, the approach of two knights, 
for such their dress bespoke them, was a rare event at a Saxon solemnity, and could not but be regarded as a sort of honor to the deceased and his family. And in his sable dress, and holding in his hand his white wand of office, this important personage made way through the miscellaneous assemblage of guests, thus conducting Richard and Ivanhoe to the entrance of the tower. Gurth and Wamba speedily found acquaintances in the courtyard, nor presumed to intrude themselves any farther until their presence should be required. End of chapter 41